0: Computers
1: online.
0: Archiving 44K. Initiate sequence.
1: T-minus 30 seconds. Server connection
0: confirmed. T-minus 25 seconds. Live
1: stream 21 and 20K. T-minus 20 seconds.
0: All lines are go. T-minus 15 seconds.
1: Satellite not fully verified.
0: T-minus 10 seconds. I can't complete. That mm-hmm. rate right up right there, Mike. 5,
1: 4, 3, 2, Welcome to Black Op Radio, the voice of political conspiracy research. You're listening to Black Op Radio, the show NSA doesn't want you to hear. Here is your host,
0: Len Osanik. Control you're on the air.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanik. Tonight, we're speaking to Jim Di Eugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Good evening, Jim. It's a pleasure to speak to you. We're both on the West Coast. We've both got uh, similar interests and. We talk about all things JFK and then sometimes Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, things like that. Your website is kennedysandking.com. Let's start off with what's new in the world in uh, JFK research.
0: Well, first of all, let me give you some news. I just checked the ratings at Amazon for DVD sales. In the documentary section, JFK Revisited is number four. Now, why is that rather surprising because the picture has been out on DVD for almost 12 months now. In fact, in about 4 days it will be about 12 months, which is really kind of amazing. Shout Factory, which did the actual DVD production, I think if it, I think they underestimated just how big the appeal of this DVD Blu-ray would be and I believe they should have made it available, you know, through Amazon on every English language speaking country in the world. Okay, that that would of course would mean the United Kingdom, Australia, and is it available in Canada?
1: You know, I assume so because I I bought mine over the web, right? Okay.
0: Then you okay, fine. You know, but they should have made it available in the United Kingdom. And Australia, okay, I mean, that's approximately I think about a 100 million people between the United Kingdom and, and Australia. Well, still, let's
1: just be happy for what you know you got a lot of real interest in what Oliver Stone and you put together, because you wrote mm-hmm. it, and then he right. had it put together with the editing and the filming and the and the flow and um, so it's just congratulations that it's, it's well thank
0: con- you thank you so much for that, Len. Alright, now I think that we should finish up, last week we talked a little bit about the Pentagon Papers Alright um, Because and, Dan- and by the way
1: last week Ted Yacuchi, who had interviewed you earlier uh, and me a few years ago, he's going through his archives and he's putting stuff together, he has another segment, so he released something last week, he's, he emailed me he said, Lan, I've got another one ready to go So I'm going to have him on uh, again next week. And uh, it's about the CIA. His last one was about the pains. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's just good to see people doing good research. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I call this stuff good. If you agree with everything that a certain author or filmmaker says, fine, you know. If you like Oliver Stone, fine, you know, if if, uh, Ted Yacucci's done good work and, uh, you know, uh, so many people, so many people. Mm -hmm. So that's what we try to uh, spotlight on. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, with your reviews of things, you generally will review something that's bad, though, just to let people know that it's, you know, a really crappy book. But um, usually I won't have that kind of author on, you know, I'll just say I'd rather I'd rather not talk about something I didn't really like.
0: Well, you did have William Stone on, didn't you?
1: Oh, uh, with the same stone. Uh, yeah, I did, but that was a little bit. You know, it wasn't uh, out of a thousand or how many now? Eleven 1, hundred <laughs> shows. Something I looked forward to, really.
0: Uh huh. Yeah.
1: Maybe Lee stone. Maybe you mentioned uh-huh. it, but I didn't believe him at all. He and if anybody didn't listen to that episode, he had a Nova special, I think, on saying that Lee no, Oswald. No, no, that
0: that that movie that he did on Oswald. Yeah. That if you can believe it, that was actually in theaters. Okay? It no. was later broadcast on TV, Oh. alright? I couldn't But it, it was actually released, I saw it in a theater, alright, in, in downtown LA. Okay, I couldn't, I, there were maybe six people there that night. Was it called Oswald's Ghost? Or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, it yeah. might
1: have been that. But the thing was, oh, I know what happened. You know what? He had kind of mixed, re- you know, 50-50 reviews, so... When I did contact him, I said, uh, you know, do you want to talk about your film? And then when I watched it and I emailed back to him and I said, you know what? I want to be truthful with you. I don't believe this and I, I think it's better that I just don't have you on there because I, I don't like, I don't do ambush journalism, you know, or whatever. And I just don't want, and he said, no, he said, I've listened to your show and I know you have a contrary view, but let me come on. I'd like to make my case. And it, it was refreshing that, that he did you know, he knew what he was up against kind of. And I said, okay, sure. If that's how you feel, I'm not buying into that, but if we're polite about it. And he went on for three quarters of the show, but then he said, well, I, I you know, near the end, he goes, name one thing that, you know, that, that proves that Lee didn't do it. And then I said like, well, commission exhibit 399. I mean, he never not bought the bullet. He never bought the rifle and the bullets. Don't, I mean, just on that alone, and then I think we started to just squabble over that, and then it just ended. Mm-hmm. But that was the kind of thing that you know, if if um, I I sorry, I always have to use John Armstrong, right? But mm-hmm. he, he's kind of like you know, to, for some people, you know, dividing. I just don't believe that. But uh, uh, like you, I say, listen, just read what he's brought up. He's he digs up these facts about you. You can't really be in two places at the same time. Or there's two people. Now, if you say Lee Oswald, an imposter, then we're all kind of in agreement. But if you say one guy's Lee and the other guy's Harvey, and then they went to school together, and it's just, and then starts to you scratch your head, and you go, how could that be? And, you know, I mean, I like when I interview, and then people write back to me about, like, for instance, John Armstrong, they said, I listened to him, and he, and he sounds like a reasonable researcher, and so I'm going to start taking him a little more seriously because it's like that was bobby kennedy that they, they, they all anti-vaxxer crazy he's a wacko and then people hear him and they go you know what maybe there's more to that he's talking about how many times have pfizer been been sued into the billions into the billions and they pay five billion in penalties but then they make 20 billion and you find out mm-hmm. so many people have had adverse reactions on that and um Anyway, I'm getting off track a bit, but that's the kind of thing is that um, uh, I, did, I did have somebody on, like you mentioned his name. And I forget his name, but it was Stone, his last name.
0: Yeah, I think it was William Stone was his name. The movie was Oswald's Ghost. He does a lot of pictures for PBS, okay? Um, he's done several movies. He specializes in documentaries for PBS. You know, PBS went south a long time ago on the JFK case. You know, um, under Reagan, towards the end, the Republicans were bitterly attacking PBS for being too liberal, okay? And they, they get a lot of government funding, and so they began to feel the heat. And then they did that PBS special in, I believe, 1991, who was Lee Harvey Oswald, Michael Sullivan was the late Michael Sullivan was a producer. Gus Russo and Dale Myers were consultants on the show. And it was pretty horrendous. Okay. It was a pretty bad program. You know, and that's when I began to realize that it wasn't just PBS, but Gus Russo had flipped the coin. Okay. And he was uh, now migrating. you know, to the uh, Oswald, and I was obviously correct about that, you know.
1: Yeah, and, I, I looked it up. His name is Robert Stone.
0: Oh, it's Robert Stone? Yeah,
1: oh. and, and it is Oswald's ghost, and that uh, was show number 362, February well, I, uh, in 2008, so quite a yeah. while ago.
0: Yes, but that not that when the movie came out?
1: I mean, you know, more than likely, right? Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: All right, and so... PBS, you know, and I'm pretty sure Oswald's ghost was carried by something like Nova or America Experience or something like that. Okay. Also, after it was released in theaters, okay. And you know, PBS has gone whole hog the other way. You know, they've they've essentially uh, decided that, you know, if you if we want to stay alive, we have to do this Warren commission crap, you know, on, on the JFK case, you know, and, and so, and they've consistently done that ever since, you know, there was a, the 1991, 1990, or 90, it might've, yeah, it was 91, I think. Okay. Oh no, I'm wrong. I think that was 1993 for the 30th anniversary. They did that. Who was Lee Harvey Oswald? Okay. And then they did the Nova thing which they tried to say that the doctors in Dallas really didn't have a disagreement with the autopsy. And then they did uh, the Hague's uh, father and son team for the 50, I believe that was the 50th anniversary. Okay. And so, and they've been essentially like that, you know, ever since the, the late Reagan years, which is very, you know, you know, because PBS Is supposed to be an alternative to the mainstream media. Okay? And when they do something like this, like what they've done, I mean, it's just very disheartening, you know? But anyway. All right. uh, Last week, I said I wanted to finish up on the Pentagon Papers. Okay? And um, uh, my kind of different take on how And why that occurred. And I think I got to the part where um, I believe that McNamara did this because he had realized by 67 that there was no turning back, that this has turned into a giant debacle, not anything like what he was involved with at first under Kennedy and in fact by 1963 um, he had become essentially Kennedy's point man on the withdrawal plan All right, and this was progressing and it began when Galbraith went to see McNamara and told him what Kennedy's real views are And then Kennedy, um, excuse me, then McNamara went to Roswell Gilpatrick, who was his deputy, and he more or less said, you know, we're getting out of Vietnam. Okay, the president wants us to start winding this thing down. And then he announced at the SecDef meeting when he asked Harkins, the overall commander of the Pentagon in Saigon, Okay, that we uh, were getting out, so start setting up a schedule. Then in the May 1963 meeting, which I believe was in Hawaii, he collected the schedules, okay? And he said, this isn't fast enough. Then, of course, there was a Taylor McNamara report And then there was NSAM 263, and that was the formal beginning of the withdrawal plan. And we all know what happened within days of his assassination, JFK's assassination. Johnson essentially turned this around, and by March of 1964, NSAM 288 essentially mapped out that there was going to be a war against North Vietnam, all right? And so McNamara, I believe, commissioned the Pentagon Papers because he had, to be perfectly frank, I believe McNamara just might have suffered a nervous breakdown over this. I described what his secretary said about him coming into work and he would just rail against Rolling thunder, then the rage would subside. He'd stare out the window, start crying, and then wipe his face with the curtains. All right, you know, that's in that really good book by Tom Wells, The War Within. All right, and we all know what happened to his family, his son put up a North Vietnamese flag on his bedroom wall. All right. He, uh, Craig McNamara later wrote a book called Because Our Fathers Lied. Okay. And see, but the thing is, you know, I don't – I consider McNamara – see, his big mistake was not quitting in 1964. He should have resigned. But that if you recall that movie, The Post – with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. That was so false that McNamara was trying to advise Catherine Graham not to publish the Pentagon. That's not true. You know, McNamara never made any effort to either censor the Pentagon papers or stop them from being published. And I thought that that was really a rather... See, when you... I'm not against using dramatic license in films. Sometimes you must, okay. But when you reverse what really happened, that's
1: that's yeah, bad. That's propaganda.
0: Yeah, that's that. That's really, you know, you shouldn't you you shouldn't do that.
1: And you, correct me if you're wrong, if I'm wrong, but um, didn't didn't somebody uh, commit suicide right outside of McNamara's window? I think that's correct. Yeah.
0: I think I think that's correct. I was on this show a couple of weeks ago called True and On. This is this podcast. And I was talking about this and I said, I don't believe McNamara is the villain that he's he's made out to be. And I I should have brought that thing up with the post. I believe that if Kennedy had lived, McNamara would have kept on doing what he was doing. He would have carried out. The withdrawal program. And there's simply no doubt about this today with, uh, you know, Fletcher Prouty was one of these guys because he was inside the Pentagon. He was aware of this stuff going on from his own point of view. Then, of course, we had. Oh, and, and let me let me add something there. I believe it was in 1986. And, you know, if I'm wrong about that, I, I hope you can correct me. Because you have all of his essays that were published and unpublished. But in 1986, I believe that's the year, Fletcher wrote a long essay in which he talked about all these things that were really going on in Vietnam in 1962 and 1963, you know, like this intelligence deception that was going on to try and deceive McNamara and Kennedy, how Kennedy had started a withdrawal program. And how he had been made aware somehow that we were not really winning the war, that it was really a a kind of hopeless kind of struggle. But, you know, Kennedy actually knew that. And that long essay is one of the very best essays that was published before the advent of the movie JFK. You know, and I, I really was, do you have that? You know what I'm talking about?
1: Well, I have them all. I have them all, so if you read it, I must have emailed it to you.
0: Okay. You should actually feature that on your... Well, every, I think everybody should know, Len has, by far and away, the best Fletcher Prouty website. That What is it called? org. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the that's connected. by far and away...
1: And I, I put everything together on a CD-ROM called The Collected Works of Criminal Fletcher Prouty.
0: Yeah, and that, that essay was... Along with, I believe, um, Peter Scott's essay, about, which was actually based on the Pentagon Papers, his long essay, which was published in two or three venues, those are two markers in the whole long travail of the American public finding out that everybody had been lying about this. And when I mean everybody, I mean everybody. I mean the entire media conglomerate, the entire academic conglomerate, our entire institutionalized history had been lying about somehow, because you you know this story, every kid growing up who went to college and had to take U.S. history, it was Kennedy had committed American forces to Vietnam, and Johnson was just continuing that commitment, you know, as an extension of Kennedy's policy. And, And one of the worst people on this was Johnson. Johnson knew, as we showed in our film, with that 1964 discussion with McNamara, he knew that he was breaking with Kennedy, but he didn't want to tell the public that. He wanted everybody to believe that he was really continuing Kennedy's policy. And finally, you know, Oliver Stone exposed that to a mass audience, you know, that Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam. So there was no continuation of Kennedy's policy. Johnson consciously reversed field and people like Fletcher and people like Scott were some of the early pioneers. There's also that book O'Donnell and Powers, uh, Johnny, We Hardly Knew Ye, in which they t- they come out and say that, no, Johnson was not continuing Kennedy's policy. And by the way, I didn't know that. And they, they largely based it on his discussions with Mike Mansfield, the senator. I believe he was from Montana okay, who was an Asian history scholar. And he advised Kennedy twice not to go into Vietnam. And then after the second discussion, Kennedy told O'Donnell and Powers, you know something, I think he's right. Okay, but I can't do it now. Because if I did it now, there'd be a red scare on our hands. But I can do it after I get reelected. So let's make sure I get
1: reelected. Well, here's the funny thing to the uninitiated they may not get. If Kennedy was pulling out of Vietnam... Or he was going to stay there and help them. What's the difference, right? And and the difference is then, if you go, if this is the final straw of the people who had Kennedy killed, like if they were against everything, the Bell Helicopters, the Bank of Boston, Sullivan Cromwell, this is just another fingerprint of what lengths they went to to get that war back on track. They killed Kennedy to mm-hmm. change it. And, and S.A.M. 263 and S.A.M. Two seventy-three, right? That's the mm. first thing that Johnson signed. So it's hard to say that um that Johnson is just continuing when Kennedy's pulling out, and then it the, that has changed and said, "We will help them to win." Right,
0: right. That you're, I, you're. That's correct. Okay.
1: I'm just trying to summarize that for somebody who's not as might be new to them, but because you say, "Well, what's the big deal?" But it, it, this is just kind of it. It's lifting the lid to say. There's so many things that Kennedy was doing, you know. He was going to do the joint space race. He was going to go – you know, like these people freaked. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon Papers is kind of revealing the fraud of this war that I think there needs to be a Pentagon Papers coming out about the Ukraine of saying, (laughs) where's all this money going? Money, money, money. And every tank they send over there is blown up within four hours of being on the, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, well, that's a different topic. But it's just similar when you look back at it, right?
0: So let me let me add that at the trial of Daniel Ellsberg and Anthony Russo, which was in California in 1973, Arthur Schlesinger testified that if Kennedy had lived, the war would not have been escalated. That's actually in The Washington Post. March the 14th, 1973. You can actually look it up. I think it's at Harold Weisberg's archive. All right. And in the Gravel edition of the Pentagon Papers, which I believe that's the long version, four volumes, I think. I believe that was published in 1971 or 72. There's actually a 40-page chapter entitled Phase Withdrawal of United States Forces. That's in Volume 2, Chapter 3 of the Gravel edition of the Pentagon Papers.
1: Now, I'm not sure, is it Gravel or Gravel? But anyway, it's named after a senator, Mike Gravel, Gravel, and he thought it was so important that he read it into the congressional record so they couldn't hide it anymore. That's how important this was at the time. By the way,
0: by the way, Mike Gravel timed that so that almost nobody would be there because he knew there would be objections Once he started reading this into the record. So he went, he was not in the best of health either by the time he was doing it. So he read it for about an hour and two, and then he was on the verge of collapse. Okay. And then he moved to have it committed to the Senate record. And there was, he timed it so there would be no objections. And that's how it got in to the record. All right. And then that was then published by Beacon Press. All right. And like I said, there's a 40 page chapter called Phase Withdrawal of United States Forces, which, by the way, is not in the New York Times edition. Now, I don't know what happened. Maybe Gravel had a longer version of the Pentagon Papers than the New York Times did, but it was not in the New York Times edition.
1: No, they censored out some really important things.
0: Okay, There, well there are
1: some things missing from it. That okay. I... That's one of the things that I brought up with Fletcher, that I just didn't know you have to put them side by side and then you go oh my god here's an extra 40 like you say 40 pages here's Mm -hmm. an extra 80 pages right Mm -hmm. one of the famous ones that i was looking for it was uh i'll have to look it up but just say it was uh something about um, a trip report and they say uh you know i'm looking at section one and section two and you get to section three and then it goes to section seven it goes (laughs) and here here follows section three four five and six and then you go, well, okay. So I just kept reading. And then Fletcher brought it up to me. Did you, he says, did you ever try to find out what those were? And I said, no, I, I just read right over it several times. And I go, yeah, where are those, right? And those are all the situations and trends and the estimates of how many people will be killed. And, you know, the, the real uncomfortable figures that were in the, the gravel edition that weren't in the New York Times edition. And I, I was stunned that I just read over the thing and just kind of kept going. Oh, okay, uh, it goes from Section 3 to Section 7. Okay. you know.
0: And by the way, you know there's an even a longer version now. Okay, I, I believe that's the complete version. But you can buy that on discs now, the, the entire Pentagon Papers. Now, in my article, I note that Scott wrote his essay based on the information that was in the Pentagon Papers. And the thesis of that article was, had Kennedy lived, the evidence indicated he would not have escalated in Vietnam. And this was reversed under Johnson. So the exact quote I used was from Scott's essay, which is included in Government by Gunplay. Pretty interesting volume Okay, on all the assassinations. McNamara had predicted the United States military task in Vietnam would be completed by the end of '65 and that as a first step, 1,000 United States troops would be withdrawn by the end of 1963. It seems likely, furthermore, that the sudden reversal of subsequent plans to withdraw the 1,000 troops was only the outward symbol of a much more far-reaching policy change, of a new or renewed commitment, ultimately leading America from an advisory to an unambiguously direct combat role. All right, And I think that's a pretty good early summary of what was going on. But let me add this. That essay was actually in the Gravel edition of the Pentagon Papers. But according to Aaron Good, who was very close friends with Peter Scott, it was mightily resisted by the editors of that edition of the papers, namely Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky. And when I interviewed Aaron about this, he said they did not want to include it because it would look like the president could make a difference. Wow, you believe that? But Chomsky eventually relented on freedom of speech grounds. Okay, It, it 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 would look like a president can make a difference. Therefore, we don't want to include it. I mean, come on. Okay, you know the the evidence today, of course. is overwhelming, okay, on this point, all right, I mean, there's there's simply no question about it with all the declassified documents that we have, and I think this is part of the story that Ellsberg himself missed. He became friends with Robert Kennedy later on, and in his book, he talks about that friendship, and he says that when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, he broke down and cried for half an hour, you know, and he said I I loved Bobby Kennedy you know and that's the only politician i ever felt that way about so i i in my opinion i don't think he actually in any of his writings that he gave jfk enough credit which is really weird because of the phase withdrawal section in in his in the gravel edition of the pentagon papers all right now i just posted a new article which i'm not going to discuss tonight because we have to get to the letters that are piling up, but it's called Chris Hedges and Aaron Mattei. Please sit down. These This is a review of Aaron Mattei's appearance on Useful Idiots for June the 23rd with Katie Helper. And they had on Aaron Good and Dave Talbot. And Aaron Mattei asked some of the dumbest questions that I've ever seen by what I thought was an alternative media guy. And he admitted that the only reading he's ever done on the Kennedy presidency was Seymour Hersh and Noam Chomsky, which I said is sort of like saying the only books I've ever read about Kennedy's assassination are by Vincent Bugliosi and Gerald Posner, okay? So if you want to, that's the first part of the article. The second part, which I believe this one was even worse. This is with the New York Times former journalist Chris Hedges. He was on a podcast called Bad Faith with a woman named Brianna Joy Gray. I think she used to work for Bernie Sanders. He was even worse than Aaron Matei was. I mean, you know, there's nothing worse to me than a so-called alternative journalist who thinks they really know something about JFK and Bobby Kennedy, when it's very clear what they've done is swallowed a bunch of propaganda. Okay. He, he also said, by the way, that he that he had read and he, he, he thought Seymour Hersh's book, The Dark Side of Camelot, was a good book. And I, I linked to my review of Cy Hersh's, a two part review I did, you know, and I exposed that book for the piece of garbage that it really is. And anybody who can't see that it's a piece of garbage, you know, is not a very good scholar or analyst. All right. So anyway, that's uh, my latest article uh, that's up. And I think most of the people listening to this show uh, would be interested on that. And then we'll talk about that on the next time I'm on the show. What I wanted to do was I want to alert people about a news item. Well, first of all, not enough people go to the news items, all right, at Kennedy's and King. But we have some very interesting stuff there. The latest thing we have is RFK Jr.'s peace speech, which I think was delivered on the 23rd. And it was clearly modeled on JFK's famous peace speech. And I think we're also going to have up pretty soon. And boy... Bobby Kennedy's sit-down interview with Bill Maher, go to, we'll have a link to it, but go to the 16-minute section on YouTube where he talks about both the JFK and the RFK assassinations. You know, I, I don't like Bill Maher for a lot of different reasons. I could go on for about a half an hour of why I don't like the guy, but he actually let Bobby Kennedy Jr. expound on this. You know, and I don't, and although Bobby has given a lot of attention to the assassination of his uncle, this was the first time that I actually saw him do an extended discussion of both of them, the assassinations of both his uncle and his father, and he actually gave a lot of time to the latter, uh, which I believe that for whatever reason, uh, not enough people are aware of what happened at the Ambassador Hotel. I believe that in that interview, he actually said that the true assassin was St. Eugene Caesar, which I believe there's a lot of evidence that would say that that's a pretty good uh, piece of evidence-backed, a pretty good piece of evidence-backed proposition, legal proposition, all right, for the simple reason that Sir Ann Sirhan was never in the correct position to abide by Thomas Noguchi's autopsy, whereas St. Eugene Caesar was in a perfect position to do that, okay? And, well, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but take a look at that, okay? and And for the first time, tens of thousands of people Uh, are going to actually hear what really happened at the Ambassador Hotel that night. And in my opinion, you can agree with me or disagree with me, that is so very important for two reasons. First of all, that was the end of the 60s prematurely. Because remember, that was in the summer of 1968. But that was the end of the 60s. In the space of five years, you had the assassinations of JFK, Malcolm X, King, and Bobby Kennedy and everybody knew that Bobby Kennedy was the last best hope that we had left all right and King if you recall he would not endorse Eugene McCarthy Eugene McCarthy ran in the New Hampshire primary and he almost won he almost beat Johnson I think it was 49 to 42 something like that and although Bobby had decided to enter the race before that he did not want to announce before that because he did not want to interfere with McCarthy and his candidacy. Johnson, then, because of that humiliating showing, he got the word that in the next primary, which I believe was Wisconsin, all right, that he was going to get slaughtered, okay? He was going to really lose badly. And he decided to leave the race at that time, if you remember. The assassination of Bobby Kennedy. In addition to being the end of the 1960s, that paved the way for the Republican ascendancy. I really believe that. And it also led to, however you're counting, five to seven more years of war in Vietnam. And I believe that, and I think most people listening to this show will agree with me, the Vietnam War was the most divisive. It was the most polarizing. It was the most destructive conflict since the Civil War, in other words, in a century. It was that bad, okay? And so Bobby Kennedy's assassination was like the impact, you know, of a nuclear bomb on American history. You know, I I really believe that. It was the end of a lot of things, all right? And And for whatever reason, I don't know why it doesn't get more attention. It should get a lot more attention, because I've always maintained that that case is more easy to prove as a conspiracy than the JFK case is. The JFK case might take you a couple minutes to convince somebody doesn't know anything. You know, the RFK case will take you about 30 seconds. What I do when, when people who don't know about this, and a lot of people don't, in fact, most of the public doesn't, you know, I just say, okay, you stand here, you're Bobby Kennedy. Okay. I'm going to stand here. I'm Sirhan. Bobby Kennedy's 5'10 and a half. Sirhan is about 5'4 and a half. Every witness said that he had his arm extended parallel to the floor. So where do you think the projectiles would have hit? You know, and they always say, well, the chest and shoulder area. And I go, yeah, that's a natural deduction. Well, I'm going to tell you something that's absolutely true. None of the bullets hit there. And then I run around behind the person, and I say every bullet that struck Bobby Kennedy came in at an extreme upward angle. It came in from behind, and it came in at a distance of three to six inches. And by the way, and, Nigu- and there's a disagreement, Noguchi actually said that the fatal bullet that hit him in the head was actually a contact wound, which would mean the muzzle of the gun was right up against his hair. All right. And the reason he said that is because when he did experiments, he found that the only way you could get that tattooing effect – you know what I mean, Len? I mean you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, but go yeah. ahead. Tattooing means that there was actually an imprint in Robert Kennedy's the back of his head because when you get that close to the target, the particles coming out of the muzzle of the gun don't have anywhere to go. They don't, they don't dissipate into the ear. They actually go ahead and imprint themselves in the target. And so when Noguchi saw this, he set up an experiment at his office. And what I think he put some pigskins up against the wall. He had a weapon like what was supposed to have been used in that case. And then he just simply walked his way up. You know, he started at like five feet, two and a half feet, one foot finally point contact range and the only way he would get that effect is when he was at point contact range all right no one no one saw Sirhan's gun muzzle ever that close to JFK's head or from behind okay you know and I don't care who's changed their story because there's you get that in these cases all right but That night, nobody saw that, and nobody saw Sirhan from behind. All right, so this is why I say it's even easier to prove that there was a crossfire at the Ambassador Hotel than it was in, in the JFK case. The only big difference, of course, is that in the JFK case, yeah, there's a pruder film, you know. But let me add this. Everyone listening to this show understands that the JFK autopsy was a travesty, all right? It would have never held up in court, never. It would have been ripped to smithereens, and, and it would have been discarded, okay? And I could we could talk about that for two hours, all right? But that's how bad it was. In this case, in the RFK case, do you know uh, who was one of the observers? At the at the RFK autopsy, Lynn. Go ahead. Pierre Fink. Because Noguchi was friends with Cyril Wecht. And he called up Cyril Wecht. You know, and he said, well, what do you think I should how, We don't want another Dallas. Okay, so how do you think I should proceed her? He goes, I know what to do. I'll come in as an observer, and we're going to get Pierre Fink to come in as an observer. Okay, he was at the Kennedy autopsy. So nobody will question your work. Okay, <laughs> and, so, and so they had about two or three other guys all observing what Noguchi had done. And everybody, well, not everybody, most everybody who's read that autopsy, you know, it, I think it's 64 pages long. The, uh, the JFK autopsy is about seven pages long. So this is almost 10 times as long and most of the people who have read it, you know, consider it to be, you know, an, an, almost a model of how to do an autopsy. All right. And so this is why when, when Thomas Noguchi said, I believe in his book, Corner, he said, and I'm pretty sure this is just about what he said, I have never said that Sirhan Sirhan killed Robert Kennedy. That's from the guy who did the autopsy, a 64-page autopsy on him. All right? All right. And so everyone, we're going to have that posted. And you'll probably post it as part of this the notes for this show. Okay? So everybody should take a look at that. Okay? Bill Maher's interview with Robert Kennedy Jr. And he talks about the murders of both his uncle and his father. I mean, come on. Can you name? I can only name one other instance that I recall. And this was when Gore and Clinton were running in 1992, where they were asked about, I think it was Posner's, was it Posner's book? Or was it, I think it was just the JFK's assassination in general. Okay. Because of, of the fury over Oliver Stone's film. And Al Gore said that he thought it was a conspiracy. He's the only other guy I know who's ever running for presidential office. And by the way, have I ever have I ever talked about why he said that? Have I ever talked? You remember me talking about that? Oh, go why ahead now
1: for anyone who didn't hear it either. You know.
0: Oh, okay. Well, Al Gore, of course, from Tennessee. Bernard Fensterwald was from Tennessee. Fensterwald founded the Assassinations Archive and Research Center, sometimes called Bud Fensterwald. When Gore got to Congress, he knew Gore's family. Bud Fensterwald knew Gore's family. And he said, do me a favor. Before you head back to Tennessee every weekend, Drop into my office for like 45 minutes before you go to catch your plane. And I'll have these documents set up on a desk for you to read. All right. And I'm not going to interfere with your reading. I'll just lay these out. And you can go ahead and read them, interpret them as you wish. Okay. So Gore did that every weekend for a year. So it's 52 weeks. That he went in there and he read these documents. And at the end of the year, he went up to Bud Funstroll and said, You're right, it was a conspiracy. Okay. And he said that, you know, in the interview that that somebody asked him in Clinton about it. Okay. And Gore said that yes, I believe it was a conspiracy. And by the way, from what I understand, he still is in that school. He still believes that. I know a a woman who worked for the House Select Committee, and she went into the White House, okay, when Clinton and Gore were there. And she said that Gore was very vigorously promoting the idea that JFK was killed by a conspiracy. You know, you don't get that very often, especially in the Clinton White House. All right. And so, uh, so he's the only other guy. Presidential candidate or vice presidential candidate that I know of, whoever said that. So, Bobby Kennedy Jr. saying this is about both cases is a milestone, I believe. All right, Len, we never stop getting these letters. It doesn't matter when, whenever I think I'm getting done with these, you know, they roll in, which I guess speaks well of us. All right. It's always good to have, you know, an active audience, you know.
1: Yeah, it's a good thing is that people all over the world can write in and ask you, right. someone important in the case who works with Oliver Stone, that, you know, can you explain this? What do you think of that? And uh, you take the time to answer those questions. So it's great. All
0: right. May 22nd. Joseph Rowland. Jim, I'm curious what evidence there is that Oswald was a Marxist. The earliest it was reported he was a Marxist was at the age of 12 but the source for this information was de Mornchild which is not a trustworthy source. Are there any independent witnesses corroborating Oswald's Marxism? Um, Palmer McBride I believe in 1955 when Oswald was, I believe, 16 years old right, in New Orleans, okay, uh, he said that Oswald was flirting around with the communist philosophy. And then, I believe, a few months later, several months later, when he moved to Texas, I believe in Fort Worth, he started writing letters to this Socialist Party of America, the youth group, okay, and he wanted to study more about Marxism, and he wanted to send him some literature. So it was about the age, I believe, of 16 that he began to show uh, these Marxist tendencies, all right, and I believe they were inspired by his friendship with David Ferry. Okay, that was that's my opinion. All right. Okay, May the twenty third. Stephen Kapeski. Uh, Mr. De Eugenio, this is an amateur level question. But what is the legacy of the House Select Committee? They concluded it was. Probably a conspiracy, but they didn't implicate anyone. The the dictabelt thing proved there was a second shooter, but then this was discredited. So what exactly is the verdict in that regard? All right. You have to separate out the actual HSEA from what Robert Blakey, who was the second chief counsel, said later. All right. Because he blamed it on organized crime, of course. But the House Select Committee report, you're right, doesn't really blame it on anybody. All right. And their major discovery they considered was the Belt. Now, I wouldn't quite say the Belt has been discredited. There's are some people uh, who like Martin Hay, Donald Thomas and Josiah Thompson who advocate for it. And it was Alvarez who did all he could to discredit it. And Alvarez, as anybody knows, uh, Don Thomas and, and Thompson in and Last Second in Dallas have shown that Alvarez was a little bit nutty on the JFK case, and he sacrificed a lot of scientific principles in various times of his life for ideology. So Alvarez was, you know, I believe, a very biased observer. Now, some people, on the other hand, in the research community, um, like Pat Spear and David Mantic, you know, and... Myself are a little bit skeptical. Well, those guys are even more skeptical than me. So there's a debate about this, okay? And, uh, you know, in my opinion, the HSCA, there are some good reports in the, in the volumes. Like, for example, the essay on Jack Ruby's polygraph, which proves that that test was fixed, number one, and that Ruby actually lied on that polygraph test. Okay? Now, they also did a very extensive biography of Jack Ruby. The declassified documents of the House Select Committee, I believe, are better than what's in the volumes. To give you a good example, the, uh, the Mexico City report by Eddie Lopez and Danny Hardaway, you know, the New Orleans stuff by Larry Delsa and Bob Burris, and the declassified stuff they have on the autopsy. Those are all very valuable elements. And of course, the work of Betsy Wolf. You know, the work of Betsy Wolf was, was invaluable. Uh, but it never got into the volumes. Uh, to put it in a very abridged manner, she showed that somebody was rigging Oswald's file at the CIA when he was going to Moscow. Okay, that it was going to a place that it shouldn't have gone to. And somebody rigged the mailing logistics system to make sure that it did. Okay. And Betsy Wolf's work, like I said, was invaluable, but it's not in the House Select Committee volume. So that's why I say that You know, some of the best stuff that they had. And by the way, I don't even think they typed Betsy Wolf's work and did type memoranda form because I've only seen it in in longhand writing. Okay, I don't know why they did that. That's a real mystery. But Victoria Adams was not interviewed by the House Select Committee, Uh, Ruth Payne was not interviewed by the House Select Committee. Brennan. Refused to show up. He said he he would resist any invitation. He would resist any in-private interview. He would resist a subpoena. Okay. He he was just not interested at all in going up there. Well, take that for what it's worth. All right. In my opinion... And I think in a lot of other people's opinions, you know, the House Select Committee, if it had maintained its original leadership, which was Richard Sprague, who passed away about a year or two ago, uh, and Bob Tannenbaum, I think it would have been a very different result than what we ended up with. OK, um, but. I believe Sprague was removed for political reasons, all right. And I've written about this a lot. You know, anybody can read what I, you know, what I think about this. But I think it would have been a very different story, okay, if if the original leadership would have been maintained. And I think we—I said this more than once before—that when Stokes, who was the ultimate. Committee chairman after Al Gonzalez and Tom Downing left. Oh, that wasn't Al Gonzalez, it was Henry Gonzalez. Okay, after those two left, Stokes, Louis Stokes, was the ultimate ending chairman. And after he saw JFK, which I think everybody knows has that caption at the end. You know, the files of the House Select Committee are classified until 2029. He went with his daughter, and his daughter said, Why'd you do that, Dad? Okay. And he went to see the ARB and he said to Tunheim, You know, nobody was satisfied with what we do with the medical evidence. So if you can, I would strongly advise you to do a re-inquiry into that subject matter, which we know they did. Okay, Jeremy Gunn and Doug Horn did. And that was one of the most significant achievements of the ARB. So that tells a little bit story about the House Select Committee second, I believe, look, I truly believe that even 60 years later you know, in this, this country and its political institutions and its media conglomerate cannot really face the facts of the JFK case, all right? And I believe the House Select Committee was a good example of what happened there. Randon Lambert, May 24th. Oh, he wants to know, he's asking me about Stokes' daughter and what he did to help them out to support the ERB, all right? Okay, and how the HSCA forensic panel wrote something that was not in the report. So I just repeated that tonight, okay? And, um, and there were a lot of interesting documents and information and interviews that was declassified, that was not in the HSA report. I think we all know that the HSA HSA report in volume seven, I think on page 38 or something, they say that the Bethesda doctors didn't agree with the Parkland doctors about the hole in the back of Kennedy's head. Well, that simply was not true, as uh, Gary Aguilar proved the declassified documents, there was a hole in the back of the Kennedy's head, which they did see in both Dallas and Bethesda. And not only did they talk about it, they, wrote, they drew pictures of it, illustrations of it. Okay, so that's one of the things I mean about what was not in the HSCA volumes, but was declassified. June 6th, Don Pressland Dear Mr. De Eugenio, thanks for all your great work on the JFK case. Your website, Kennedys and Kings, is a valuable. Kennedys and King is a valuable resource for the public. It is a sad commentary on our media that your work and your site do not get much more favorable attention. I have enclosed a DVD copy of the movie The Package, starring Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee
1: Jones. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, yeah, it's a great movie. Oh, it is? Yeah. I've never seen it. Oh, yeah, you got to watch it. Get some popcorn and watch it. Okay.
0: Although released many years ago, the film is an excellent expose of what researchers refer to as the Chicago plot to assassinate President Kennedy. The movie does an uncanny job portraying the framing and setup of Patsy Thomas-Arthur Valet. The film is also very astute for its day, And the use of various spycraft techniques, such as doubling, providing multiple identities uh, to various individuals. Now, it is a Hollywood film, so its focus is more on entertainment at the expense of being informative. While it does not get into every detail historically correct, it at least presents the existence of a Chicago plot by U.S. intelligence and military hardliners. That this message could reach the most the American public is what is important yes the American national security state removes those they see as threats including John F Kennedy the plotters were professionals who had done coups assassinations and regime change all over the globe so yes there were backup contingencies there's little doubt about that now there were four lone nut patsies set up one in Chicago one in Miami one in Tampa one in Dallas The evidence today clearly indicates the plotters could not rely on one city, one assassin. What if Oswald had a gallbladder attack the day before? What if Oswald decided the day before to remove himself from a dangerous situation, as did Richard Case Nagel? This puts the lie to a lone shooter. It is conceivable that these four different patsies were all acting alone and independent of one another. It is clear that these four were being controlled and manipulated by a small group of very high-ranking officials who had conceived and were implementing a very elaborate, sophisticated, time-proven, clandestine operation based upon years of prior extensive operations involving foreign coups, assassinations, and regime change. The film lays the plot at the doorstep of a small group of intelligence agents and military men acting in concert to eliminate the president, Unwilling to indulge their war everywhere global agenda, your work on Kennedy's non-aligned foreign policy comes to mind as one watches the film. Is all that stuff really in there?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's just very good. God, I mean, I'm gonna I gotta it, see it now. Yeah, the dialogue from Gene Hackman is just great. I mean, if you've never seen it, you know the. Uh, um, <laughs> I love the line when that guy's explaining something to him and he goes, would you do read a book?
0: <laughs> okay. Your site, Kennedy's and Kings is a bless is the best place for accurate, detailed, important information on the Kennedy assassination. But to my great disappointment, I have not been able to persuade many of my students to frequent your site. I'm afraid the millennial generation does not read. Everything Generation Y and Generation Z believes comes to them through YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Yet major motion pictures are still a large draw for young audiences. As old as this film is, I'm able to give away copies to young 20-something-year-olds, and they will watch. On the other hand, I can't give away free assassination books to them, but they will watch the movies. And this case needs this case needs new young people to become involved. I'm surprised to learn several assassination interested friends had never seen the movie. And were, well, that's me. And were unaware of the Chicago plot. You, Jim, are very wired into the L.A. filmmaking culture. Well, I wouldn't say I'm that wired in. So you probably have seen it. I know I didn't. If not, I think you'll find it worth your while. Again, I wish the film would focus more on historical accuracy and less on entertainment but such is the nature of Hollywood. Better this film than nothing at all regarding the Chicago plot. I hope you will mention it on Facebook.
1: Yeah, you know, even um, executive action, that first two minutes, that intro, is, it, it reminds me of that too. I mean, when you look back at the film, you go, wow. They spell it out right there, you know. And uh, um, I mean, you know, just, just watch the film. We'll talk about it next week.
0: All right. Jim, you often answer listener questions on Black Op Radio, and I do have a question. I know you always refer to the mainstream media as the MSM, which is, of course, grammatically correct, but I believe the term corporate media is, more, is far more accurate. I think you inadvertently give them far too much legitimacy by calling them mainstream. They are all vested interests, privately owned for-profit corporations. They are not in the truth-telling business. They exist to serve the corporations that fund them, period. So my question is, would you please consider referring to them as what they really are, the corporate media? You know how hard it is to change a habit once you're in. it? Those
1: corporate bastards. That's what I'll call them.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll see what I can do. I wish you every well, success...
1: Also, people are calling them legacy media, meaning that they're old and it's a dying art form. And now you get Robert Kennedy going on all these podcasts. And he's saying podcasts are are where people are getting their information, Mm -hmm. you know, know, uh, like on the JFK assassination here, but on other things like Joe Rogan. Right. The value attainment that you were on. And they're, they're actually having long form interviews with people that right. are not cut off. And, and I that's what I used to hate when they say, hold that thought. We'll come right back to it after this. And then they come back and they never do. They just never do. So
0: P.S. Jim, the mini conferences in San Francisco are terrific. Such very important information is being generated there. Leno Sanek has done human's work in uploading a couple of these presentations. I realize there are technical logistics to be addressed, but perhaps all attendees might volunteer in the future to record at least one session each. Uploading to YouTube or, reluctantly, Facebook has become so easy. Even just some handheld cell phone footage would be greatly appreciated. Please, the information being discussed at these mini-conferences is too important to not see the light of day thank you jim all the best didn't you upload one of those i i uploaded many of them oh okay okay because we haven't had a san francisco conference in a very long time yeah because Years of COVID
1: and that right but yes i think i at least five or six i uploaded you did yeah yeah. I didn't even know we had that many. Oh, okay. there was about 10 or 15 people that spoke over the whole day.
0: No, no, no. I'm talking about individual
1: conferences. Oh, oh, no, no. O- only that one that I went to.
0: Yeah, you only went to one, right? Yeah. And you did yeah. put that up, right? Yeah.
1: Or, you know, and if it wasn't everything, like, um... I forget why, for but whatever reason, Lisa Pease didn't want hers put up.
0: Oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
1: Do you remember it just... And, uh... And then there was a couple there was a couple of people thought that they didn't I think they said they didn't want to be on film at all. And mm-hmm. then later in the afternoon there was a piece of paper in the doorway that says, Listen, by coming in here you agree that you may be filmed I don't know if you remember that because they they said, Look at it's an event, and we we wanted to. There was another filmmaker there as well. Um, Max, good. Yeah, copying stuff. So yeah. I was there, and he was there, and I I thought that maybe I would just have some more you know interviews for Black Op Radio. But I did I did post you and a few other people up there, right? And uh, uh, I I'll have to check the Black Op Radio uh, YouTube page and see what's there.
0: All right, Peter from Australia. Some people say there was a body switch, and unseen pyramid chambers to confirm it. Just a thought. Thanks for dedication to the truth. Oh, well, I don't agree with that. You know, I, I don't agree with any, you know, this is, you know, David Lifton has passed on. You know, his book, I believe, was the, uh, the closest thing to saying that. I don't think he said there was a body switch, though. I just think he said that the body was altered from Dallas to Bethesda. So, no, I don't think there was a body switch at all. I know that that's out there because of people like Morningstar, I believe. But no, I I don't believe that's the case. All right, uh, Marco Ermacora. Okay, we're up to June the 10th. My library was finally able to buy JFK Destiny Betrayed and JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. Oh my God, they got both of them. I just finished watching them. Now get the book, Marco. Please tell them to get the book. I just finished watching them. And learn much more about jfk's humane foreign policy especially in the third world and johnson's clear break with this that's really more of in the long version of the film that builds on all the fascinating articles that i have read by you on the subject from your website as well as from articles and books by others informative also were some new facts about the assassination those so thanks for your excellent script for the documentaries and to Oliver Stone and all others who worked on and contributed to these great and important documentaries. I'm waiting these days to read a book I found about JFK and Wall Street. All I know about his economic policies is a bit about the steel price controversy, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, and that, of course, is uh, Donald Gibson's book, Battling Wall Street which is a very good book. It's the best I've ever read on Kennedy's economic policies. And he mentions, I guess I've uh, inspired Marco to go out and find other sources. And he says there was two that he found. The Imperial Imperative, John Kennedy and U.S. Foreign Relations, which is a recent MA thesis, about face the United States and Portuguese colonialism in 1961. OK, that, of course, deals with Angola and Mozambique, which Kennedy wanted, I believe, I believe I'm right about that. He wanted them to be set free. OK, and they weren't. OK, so he sent aid to the rebels. OK, June the 10th. Craig Stevens. Hi, Jim. I just wanted to ask two quick questions. I'm endlessly fascinated by Jim Garrison, the man in this case. So here they are. One. Do you think we've seen the last of the books, documentaries, etc., dealing with Garrison, the man, or his case? I don't know. But I do believe that Mr. Abbott's work, who's doing this incredible indexing of the Garrison files, that will be out pretty soon. And that might inspire somebody else to do another book or at least a long essay on what is there, because for the first time, we will have a complete index to the Garrison Files, and Len, of course, has sent out a lot of uh, his disc on the Garrison Files. So once you have the index with the actual files, there might be some new work. Paul Blue did a nice series of essays about the fair play for Cuban Germany, based in large part on the Garrison Files. All right, and here we go. I saw on your site where Paul Blue was going to re-examine Garrison's files. Is this going to be just an article on your site, or is he going to write a book or a film or documentary? He did a three-part essay, okay, basically on exposing the fair play for Cuba Committee, which is a very, very good piece of work. Okay, so if you haven't read those, please do. I'm a big fan of both of your books, your website, and the documentary you and Oliver did, Keep up the good work. Okay. Thank you so much for that. All right. Here we're up to June the 12th. Robert Teton. Hello. Sorry. I'm sure there's a better email to filter things to Jim, but I can't find it. I'm sure this is already on your radar, but wanted to forward just in case. Um. I think what he's linking to is either Jeffrey Sachs' article, okay, uh, which was on common dreams, or maybe um, the article written by the Vandenhuvel, okay, the uh, publisher of the Nation. All right which was a commemoration of the peace speech, all right? And if you haven't read the Jeffrey Sachs um, article, you really should. You read it, didn't you? It's about what JFK would have done in Ukraine.
1: Uh, No, I haven't read that. I, I listen to Jeffrey Sachs whenever I can. So, but I have oh, okay. got around well, to it. Oh, okay. you
0: should you should read that article. Sure. All right. For next and, and I'll do it. it. Okay. All right. Uh, it's a very interesting article. I mean, it's um one of the very few things that you'll see on a so-called, you know, alternative uh, website, which Common Dreams is. All right. Uh, that actually understands what Kennedy was trying to do okay and also tries to make a parallel to what's going on today you know and how Jeffrey Sachs does not believe that JFK would have let it come to the terrible situation you know that we have there I mean What have we given them, something like $120 billion, you know, I mean, uh, to fight this war in which it's still going on? Yeah, it's the Jeffrey Sachs article, okay, that he's referring to,
1: right? And Well, you know, the the joke of this is, um, and it's uh, kind of a subliminal thing where they keep calling it a proxy war, you know? Well, yeah.
0: The, well, how could they have been able to keep this up without the money that we're well, getting? But I
1: mean, proxy, what, what, that just spells it out that it's the United States trying to cripple Russia. And
0: Well, I, I believe that's one of the major reasons for it, yes. OK, I mean, JFK just wouldn't have done something like that. You know, and, and this is what Jeffrey Sachs is talking about. OK, he's he just doesn't think that JFK would have done something like this, all right? Uh, I mean, look, the guy was getting out of Vietnam, all right? He would not commit any combat troops at all there, you know, and he was getting out of that war, all right? And he was trying for a rapprochement with Fidel Castro and Khrushchev. I mean, like we did in the film, Khrushchev was blinking back tears, when he went to sign in his name at the American embassy. We know what Fidel Castro said. You know, this is bad news. This is bad news. This is bad news. And then when he got the second phone call, he said, everything is going to change. Boy, was he ever right. Okay, so, you know, I I think what Jeffrey Sachs has written here is a very uh, interesting article. And And he makes the point that from what he's been able to figure, Biden has not talked to Putin in something like 17 months, all right? Whereas Kennedy installed the hotline so we could pick up the phone and talk to Nikita, you know? So, yeah, I think Jeff, the Jeffrey Sachs article is good. He goes on, he says, would love to know your take on this, all right? And the writer is on the right track. I'm always weary when people put things in JFK's mouth if they are not a seasoned researcher. I think it's safe to say JFK would not have meddled in Ukraine like the neocon Bush Obama people, and he would not have let his vice president put his son on a Ukrainian energy board. But I'm just projecting. The areas make it a bit apples and oranges, you know, back to this article, and perhaps just clickbait. No, it's not clickbait. Jeffrey Sachs really believes this stuff. He actually wrote a book about Kennedy, which I reviewed. And he was at that conference in Virginia that Jacob Hornberger had. Thank you to everyone who works on keeping your site going. It's a critical resource for those who care about democracy in the United States. Also, I'm very curious if Lisa Peace's book A Lie Too Big to Fail has been optioned by anyone. Or is it still out there? I don't think it has been. It would be an incredible film. Timothy Chalamet as RFK, Noah Kentantino, i don't know who that is—as Eugene Caesar, Rami Malek as Sirhan. He won the Oscar. Anne Hathaway as the girl in the polka dot dress. So many other cameos. I wouldn't cast Anna Anne Hathaway as a girl in the polka dot dress. Okay, but the other suggestions are pretty decent, I think. All right. June the 16th, Nathaniel Heddenmyra. Nathaniel is one of the very few people we have in this case who is an activist who actually goes out and posts stuff, okay, and tries to help the cause, you know, by convincing people who are new to the case of what the heck is really going on. So I give him a lot of credit. All right. As you know, I'm a long-time reminder of your work who sought to spread it to wider audiences because I think it would actually make a huge difference both in the history of the national security state and the history of U.S. media. Recent appearances of President Biden have drinking a question I've harbored for a long time since I began reading about the JFK assassination about 20 years ago. Was a president killed on 11-22-63 or was it the presidency itself? It's a very good question. That's a really interesting question. Given Biden's increasingly obvious decline and Trump's, in my opinion, equal obvious role as a foil for the national security state, name change to deep state, and we know why, isn't it time you start looking at Dallas in terms of the longer term deterioration of the presidency vis-a-vis the permanent intel bureaucracies, complete with their ties to media? I think he's right about that. Don't misunderstand me. In many ways, you've already done this, e.g., with analysis of how the JFK assassination reached into Watergate. Elsewhere, your analysis of events such as the October surprise, both of them, 1968 and 1980, have been, in my opinion, episodes illustrating this longer theme of weakened democracy, presidency versus the intelligence agencies that the president only nominally controls. How curious at the model for dealing with this complexity, the so-called imperial presidency, tends to cast it in just the opposite of what we really see happening, namely presidents' increased powerlessness in the face of bureaucratic entrenchment. Is that notion of an imperial presidency a deliberately misleading effort to defend the legitimacy of elections, which are so important, to the idea of democratic participation. Recently, with the permanent Trump show replacing all debate over policy on MSNBC and Fox, it seems as if CIA is running the White House with Biden and is so ensconced in power throughout the bureaucracies that they can even afford a foil in the White House, as in my opinion, we saw with Trump. It's 60 years after a domestic coup. And to me, at least, there seems to have been an uninterrupted process of CIA capture of each of the branches and agencies within. Do you think it is a coincidence that the longer it's been since the CIA coup of 1963, the weaker Democratic presidents have been and the less they use the bully pulpit for progressive ends? It seems to me that many GFK researchers defrayed the assassination of its long term significance by minimizing the persistently rightward direction of the DNC ever since. Again, I asked: was the president killed on 11-22-63, or was it the presidency himself? I asked this not because I expect a definitive answer, but in hopes of providing a lens worthy of the significance of Dallas and history. On the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination, it's a question we should all be uh, considering. I think he's right about that, and I think a very good example. I'm sure you're aware of this, Lynn, Was what happened to Carter? I believe in 1978. You know what I'm talking about?
1: An assassination attempt from uh, somebody <laughs> named Oswaldo.
0: <laughs> okay, that's that story is really hard to believe, but it's true. Okay. I think it was in 1977 or 1978 I believe he was visiting LA and there was an assassination attempt a reported assassination attempt on him by I believe two men one was named Oswaldo okay Uh, and I think the other name was close to the other two names okay his first name and his middle name and If anybody believes that's a coincidence, you know, I have a bridge to sell you in Arizona, okay? I mean, that is just, that story is just so bizarre, it's unbelievable. You know, and he's correct also about how the presidency has become entrapped, you know, by the national security state. I I think another example would be Iran-Contra, all right, in which Reagan – you know, at the end, he said, I don't recall 179 times at this trial in Los Angeles for one of the defendants in that case. He didn't remember or he didn't know. All right. Uh, he had to be briefed on it, if you recall, by Edwin Meese. All right. So that's, that's another example. Okay. And he's also correct, I believe, about what happened in 1968. Okay. When. The Republicans essentially sandbagged Johnson, all right, by having contact with Saigon and telling the leader of that country at that time to to denounce the peace that Johnson was working for, you know, when he decided finally that he had to get out of Vietnam. It didn't work. All right. That was really the first October surprise. All right. So those are all examples, I believe, of what I think he's correct about. That, you know, the office of the presidency was severely weakened as time went on. And you can date it back to November 22nd, 1963. And remember what Alan Dulles said. That Kennedy, he thought he was a god. Well, I don't think Kennedy thought he was. I think he just thought he was president, okay? He ended up being wrong about that, of course, you know? And a lot of the people who followed after him, you know, I believe, you know, were caught up in these phony scandals, these phony impeachment things, et cetera. And yeah, and I think they have worked, you know, to weaken the office, all right. Um, you know, I think it was Fletcher Prouty who said that Johnson asked Hoover. Were they shooting at me? You know, OK. And, you know, and that was the kind of message that I think went out. And I think wasn't it the late great Bill Hicks, uh, the comedian, the only guy who was a comedian about the JFK case, he said that, you know, words of the effect, that when a new president comes into office, the CIA shows him there's a pruder film. <laughs> you know, meaning, look, we did it to him. And we can do it to you. All right. And nobody will ever say anything about it. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement, Nathaniel. I think you're correct. And I agree with it. Gregory Giorgio. June the 22nd. I sent the note below to Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post today in response to a syndicated column RFJ Jr. Jr. down the rabbit hole. Lo and behold, it bounced back to me as the mailbox for Robinson was full. Maybe you would have some luck in any case. Just wanted to alert you if you haven't seen it. Mr. Robinson, I have made a regular habit of reading your syndicated column in my local newspaper, the Albany Times Union, and usually find your reasonable takes on the world of Pollux to be in line with much of my own knowledge and interpretations. However, your piece about Robert Kennedy Jr. and his promotion of various conspiracy theories was disturbing in one very glaring way. While I think RFK's anti-vax stance and some of his other positions are not very good for him politically and shows a certain lack of critical thinking and analysis, your attack on his take on the assassinations of JFK and his father was even more alarming to me. While I may not agree completely that JFK and his father's deaths, JFK's and his father's deaths were the work of the CIA alone, I cannot fathom a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist simply declaring Lee Harvey Oswald and Surian Suryan to be the real-world de facto assassins of the Kennedys. All right, I have made extensive study of the JFK case in particular and communicate with some longtime researchers who have developed very convincing evidence which excludes Oswald and Surian from being responsible in any way for the assassinations in question. There's a huge body of evidence which supports these ideas. I'm not aware that your declaration of real world conclusions is accepted by most Americans. I find it shocking and irresponsible that you and your editors let such a statement pass muster for your column. Some of us out there see our real world having been manipulated greatly by the killings of JFK and RFK. Too simplistically accept the CIA Warren report at all, takes on these tragic events is a detriment to your body of work and to us. That's a pretty good letter. You know, I'm really glad he sent it. I don't you know who this guy is, Eugene Robinson?
1: Um not for sure, no.
0: Okay, then I guess people should write the guy, you know? And uh, you know look, you know, this whole idea I'll just say two words about it. Richard Sprague. Richard Sprague was a legendary prosecutor in Philadelphia. I think his record was something like 72 and 2, okay, in the felony cases that he prosecuted. And he did a hell of a lot of murder cases, all right? When he got to Washington as the first chief counsel, for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, he was coming to the same conclusion that the rest of us were. And he only lasted like eight or nine months, all right? Because, you know, they did not want him doing this stuff. He was investigating Mexico City. He was hot on the trail of David Phillips. He believed Sylvia Odio. He was gonna do a live demonstration of the single bullet theory. And that was a last straw. And Joseph Rao, a famous civil rights lawyer, who also lived in Philadelphia, when he saw that Sprague was forced to resign after his stellar career, he said to Jerry Polakoff, you know, Jerry, I never thought the Kennedy case was a conspiracy until now. But if they can do that to Dick Sprague, it must have been. All right. So that's that's the whole case in a nutshell. You know, it's not down the rabbit hole It's just that somebody with such an incredible career that Richard Sprague had was not allowed to go through with his investigation because the powers that be did not want him to. And the obvious supposition is that they didn't want the whole case, the facts and the truth to come out. All right. It's not him. You know, it's uh, let's let's I'll try and correct it. I was just going to say it's the MSM, but I'll say corporate media. Okay, last question. Steve hmm, McManaman, I think that's his name. June the 26th. Hello, Len and Jim. Love you guys, and I love this show. I've been studying the JFK assassination for a little over three years now, pretty intensely. I just went to Dallas to see everything for myself that I could. That was fantastic to get a sense of where everything is. The Texas school book depository, the grassy knoll, the rail yard, the rail tower, parking lot, all the stuff in Oak Cliff, the place where Oswald was killed. I wasn't allowed in, but a student at the law school pointed everything out to me. There was an interesting place, looking place, and of course I wanted, I walked to tent in Payton where Tippett was killed. I don't buy Oswald, went so much out of his way and killed the cop. For what reason? Makes no sense to me. Anyway, I've looked at both sides, including Bugliosi and McAdams. I just couldn't stand reading the Bugliosi, so I only read specific parts just to see how he dealt with certain aspects. But McAdams was actually kind of fun in some ways, because he seems smarter than Bugliosi. You can tell he put a lot of thought into how to find potential contradictions. So I guess this is his book. Uh, which I didn't read, but Dave Mantic absolutely destroyed it. Okay, I mean, what was it called? JFK Assassination Logic or something? Do you remember the name of it? Luckily, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> just, you know. Okay, let me uh, let me uh, take a look, and I'm pretty sure that Dave Mantic reviewed it and he took that book apart. Oh, know, yeah. Yeah. Piece by piece. Okay. And, and I want to see. Yeah. It's called JFK Assassination Logic. And yes, we did review it. And go to Kennedy's and King's, Kennedy's and King, and you'll see. I think we actually had more than one review, but I, I think Dave Mantic, yeah, did the most complete and comprehensive destruction job. Okay, let me continue with this letter. Page 244. So the problem that people who claim evidence tampering is this. How could anybody tamper with evidence to make it fit a theory that didn't exist yet? All right. He has a point. I think he's talking about CE 399. So it's a single bullet theory. Why would they need to plant a bullet? Didn't they have enough? I understand why they would switch to one they supposedly found with that one would that would match the gun. I just don't get what they would plant it in the first place especially when there was no single bullet theory. Well, yeah, because the bullet that they planted was ballistically linked to the weapon. They had to have a way to do that. Okay, to pin the case on Oswald. All right. You know, and once they had that, everything else fell into place. Okay, that you know, they, now they needed this single bullet theory once they had this bullet that was allegedly ballistically linked to the rifle. Although I don't think that was a rifle. You know, we showed in the film that the rifle in evidence is not the rifle that they say Oswald ordered and nobody saw him pick up that rifle. So that was the reason for the planting a CE-399. I don't think, does anybody in their right mind believe that bullet was fired that day and did the damage it did? I mean, I sure as heck don't, you know. Uh, But that was the reason. It was to go ahead and ballistically link the alleged weapon to that bullet. And the falsity of that, of course, is found in two ways. That, as I said, the evidence says that Oswald didn't order that rifle and Oswald didn't pick up that rifle, number one. And secondly, as Josiah Thompson proved in his book, Six Seconds in Dallas, um, it was on the wrong stretcher. Arlen Spector knew that. And so he did everything he could to talk Tomlinson out of his story. But that was the reason for that, okay? You know, the desperation that once you had what the FBI said was a ballistically linked projectile. Then everything else fell into place and that was the reason for it. As far as the magic bullet theory goes, that was developed by Spectre when in Epstein's recent book where he realized that there was no other way out of this thing. Okay? Except to plead, you know, this delayed reaction thing, but it was but the FBI had timed it, you know, and it was too long, you know that Kennedy and and Connolly were hit in about 1.7 seconds, not 2.4. And that's where he came up with this. And he actually said, according to Epstein's book, that the reason the Secret Service didn't come up with this is that they didn't realize, you know, that we actually needed this or we had to look for a conspiracy. And then when Epstein asked Spectre, how did you convince the the rest of the commission about this? Spectre said, I showed him the uh, Zapruder film in slow motion. And I said, we either go with the magic bullet or we have to look for a second assassin. And that's how that came about. That was something that happened later. Okay, but it was the CE-399 And the so-called ballistic linking, that's what that was for. Okay, also, if you have time for another question, McAdams, page 140, 141, talking about the guiding hands to get Oswald a job. Just how many sets of guiding hands would have been necessary to ensconce Oswald in his patsy position in the depository that would have had to set him up? Okay, then he says, instead of just hiring Oswald, Theodore Gangella had to put him off by calling Oswald's former employer, Stovall, who in turn needed to give him a bad recommendation. The Texas Employment Commission then had to send Oswald only to businesses that likewise had improperly believed not to hire him. Then Marina Oswald, Ruth Payne, and Lenny May Randall all had to steer Oswald into pursuing a job at the depository. And Roy truly had to hire him. Anybody who thinks that Oswald was really looking for a job through the TEC, you know, I, I have real problems with that story. Okay. And the thing that was, the thing that Jim Douglas brings up that is so telling about this is that Ruth Payne did not tell Oswald about the higher paying job that came in through, was it an airport or something? A baggage loader at an
1: at an airport or something, you know. Yeah, at uh, wasn't it even at Love Field.
0: It it might it might have been there. It might yeah. Have and
1: so, imagine uh, that uh, when Kennedy's plane lands, somebody from somewhere gets a shot off, and Lee's working there. Right.
0: Okay. So the so obviously it wouldn't have been able to go through. Okay. All you needed really was that association between Ruth Payne. And uh, Lenny May Randall. Okay. And then, of course, Lenny May Randall, I don't even want to get into her, but I talked a lot about her in my book, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today? Her and that whole paper bag story, you know, which, uh, anyway. Okay. <clears throat> so, you know, I believe that was the main connection, you know, uh, that, you know, the, the whole thing. Between Ruth Payne, Lenny, okay, and her not giving him the information about, you know, about the, about the other job, all right? Uh, but look, the idea that somehow you had these guiding hands, I don't think there's any question about that, you know? I mean, what kind of a communist, you know, hangs out with the right Russians in Dallas-Fort Worth and the Cuban exiles in New Orleans, you know, works at Guy Bannister's office, okay, is seen up in Clinton-Jackson with Clay Sean David Ferry, you know, and then all those things about New Orleans get blasted into the media within an hour or two of the assassination. So those are... I don't think there's any question there were guiding hands, okay, in the, in the Oswald case. Now, if that all would have been necessary, if the Chicago plot had gone through, no, of course not. It wouldn't have been necessary, okay? You know, if, if the Chicago plot had succeeded and they would have pinned it on Arthur Vallee, you know. The other one, of course, which we mentioned tonight, was the plot in Tampa, also with Gilberto Lopez you know uh, Gilberto Pelicorbo Lopez alright look Kennedy was get, not getting out of 1963 alive Okay, and the, the more finely defined plot and the reason that it worked was because so much attention and so much significant detail was given to the Oswald Strand OK, because that was, I, I believe, going to be, you know, the last straw. You know, some people consider Chicago a run through. OK, a, a dress rehearsal. I, you know, I, I I don't consider I think they really tried to kill him. They were going to try and kill him in Chicago when that didn't succeed. You know, then they went ahead with the plot in Dallas and the key points, I believe. And the whole TSBT thing are Ruth Payne and and Lenny Mae Randall and that so-called coffee uh, gathering that they had in which she told him about the opening at the Texas School Book Depository. You know, it wasn't that difficult. <laughs> I really don't think so. OK, I really don't think so at all you know and some people bring up the other objection about there was no significant planning about the motorcade route and everything well it was it was being circulated in april of 1963 that kennedy was going to visit the dallas fort worth area in texas that fall so that information was already out there and then when you get into all the stuff about the motorcade route, which we won't go into now, because that's a whole subject in and of itself. Something was really up about that whole thing. Vince Palomera did a very good job explaining how the motorcade route was changed. And many people, many people have come to believe that such was the case now. And is that all just a coincidence? Well, if, maybe if you believe John McAdams, it is. But I don't, I don't, I don't believe it was. Okay, Len, that's the last letter good we got through quite a few yeah uh, there was about good. eight or and nine of them
1: thanks for writing in to jim and uh and to me i will I think we just mostly share the same opinion though so um all right i'll talk to you to watch that movie and then uh, we'll talk about it yeah next I'm, I'm
0: gonna have to watch it now yeah, yeah. thanks
1: yeah it's uh, uh you know i don't want to hype it up too much but i just i think you'll really enjoy it okay thanks all right, all right. All right, good night. Okay, good night. Thank you so much. Okay, good night.